My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Responses to COVID-19. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome to Bridges to the Future, Don Tapscott. So, Don, there's lots of ways in which I could introduce you, but how do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'm a researcher. I guess I'm a change agent. I'm an educator. (laughs) it's my birthday today and I'm kind of feeling old too. Oh, happy birthday. (laughs) Yeah. I started in the late seventies at Bell Northern Research, which was Canada's Bell Labs. And we had this crazy idea that everyone was going to use a computer because back then only programmers did that. And we did controlled experiments where we had a group of 50 managers and executives who essentially had what we have today, Microsoft office on the desktop, only on a dumb terminal. And a bunch of people used calendars and secretaries and typing pools and physical agendas and telephones and so on. And the group that had the technology performed better, but they also communicated differently. So I wrote a couple of books about that in the 1980s that nobody read. I think my mother probably (laughs) bought most of the (laughs) copies. Then in the early 90s, I started writing some bestsellers, Paradigm Shift in 93, which was obviously a big book and The Digital Economy in 94, uh, which was the first bestseller about the web in business. And uh, since then, I've been running a think tank, and we research all the big trends in technology and how they change business in the world. And you've particularly become associated with blockchain in recent years with your TED Talk and your book, Blockchain Revolution. And I'm sure we're going to be talking more about that. So before we get into our conversation, Don, I'm going to ask you the question we ask everybody in this podcast. So, Don Tapscott, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? Well, I think that there will be a whole number of very strong, permanent type changes. Some are pretty obvious, the ascendancy of online shopping. I don't see us going back to traditional stores, at least not in the way we did in the past. Some brick and mortar retailers will survive, but I think it's going to be very different. I think that we'll see the end of cash. turns out that cash is not just the foundation of organized crime and the drug industry and tax evasion and so on. It's also dirty and it carries viruses. So we can talk about that. I can see a comeback of global institutions, notwithstanding what president of the United States is doing to the World Health Organization, kind of an odd time to fight the organization that's been created to battle against pandemics. But I think that there is a real clear comprehension now for most people that these global institutions that were created after the Second World War, starting at Bretton Woods, who created the World Bank and the IMF, you know, then the WTO and the 
WHO and the UN and you name it, that there is a real role for these uh, global institutions. What else? Well, online education, nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has become a necessity. You know, I reflect on my own history. In 1976, I took an online graduate course in statistics um, when I was doing my graduate degree, and we all worked at terminals connected to the data center at the university. It was personalized. It was focused on me as a learner. There were no lectures, but the statistics lecture by definition is a bust. You know, there's no one size fits all for analysis of variance. Everybody either gets it or they're confused. And I figured, wow, lectures will be gone in a decade. And here we are still today with a prof standing up in front of hundreds of students and explaining, you know, what a t-test is. I think we'll be a society of clean freaks, you know, personal hygiene, sanitation, top of mind. The destigmatization of government is another one that I've been writing about. I don't think it means an end to the crisis of legitimacy of democracy. Democracy is in deep trouble right now, but the sort of Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, you know, government's not the solution to our problem. It's the problem. I don't know. It's tough to be a libertarian <laughs> right now because it's very clear. I mean, you look at the U.S., the Center for Disease Control, the Food and Drug Administration for Vaccines, the Army Corps of Engineers, you got the Federal Reserve trying to fix a problem and avoid a depression. I think that there's a clearer comprehension for the role of government. I mean, some other big ones that I've been thinking about, we're going to get serious about a universal basic income. You know, Andrew Yang popularized this in the Democratic Party primaries, but it's not just because of the current situation. You can't let people starve to death in an advanced country. But, you know, when you think about the impact of this new wave of technology, 48 of 50 states in the U.S., the number one job type for men is truck driver. I think that's gone, not in a 100 years, in a decade. So we're going to have to, you know, dig down and think hard about that. Some of the other ones, uh, virtual workplace, obviously, we're all working at home. A lot of companies deciding we're just not going to go back to an office. I'll just tell you one other that I've been thinking about. You know the expression, think global, act local? I think that we're now starting to understand that acting local is acting global. You know, if one person doesn't act in a socially responsible way during a pandemic, they can affect the future of the world. I mean, one person gets a virus and three months later, the global economy is shut down and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died. So I think when this ends, there'll be some really big changes in how we perceive ourselves uh, globally. Sure. And, you know, you're going to get the nationalists and jingoists try and use the crisis to foment national fervor you know, scapegoat other nations and so on. But I think the stronger trend will be a deep comprehension that we live on this planet together. So, Don, you've been writing about, I mean, you you know, you're a technology guru. You've been writing and thinking and popularizing thinking about technology for several decades. And that must have developed in you some views about what it is that accelerates and what it is that holds back the take-up and spread and use of technology. You know, there is that quote which is attributed to Bill Gates, but all sorts of other people as well, which is that we tend to overestimate what technology will change in a year, but underestimate what it will change in 10 years. What do you see as the things which drive rapid technological change and take-up? And do you think that crisis like the one we're living through is one of those things that accelerates or inhibits technological change i think it accelerates it i mean this is one of those turning points in history you know 
as we've been talking, the, the pandemic has already changed our lives, our impact on society, and, and we won't grasp the magnitude of that for a long time, but it's also causing us to examine our leaders, our institutions, and our systems. And it turns out technologies like artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and so on can have a really big impact in a situation like this. Now, as you know, the big one that I've been focused on recently is blockchain, because I think it's the foundation for the whole next era of technology, the next decades. And the short version of that is that for 40 years now, we've had an internet of information. But if I send you some information, I'm actually sending you a copy, you know, an email or a PDF. Even with a website, I keep the original, and that works great for information. But when it comes to things that really matter in an economy, or for that matter, in a pandemic, assets, things like money or intellectual property or PPEs or uh, securities or the data in our identity or votes, a vote is an asset, something of value that belongs to somebody. Copying those is not a good idea. So cryptographers have called this the double spend problem for decades. And the way that we manage this problem is through big intermediaries like stock exchanges, credit card companies, governments, social media companies perform all of the business and transaction logic for every type of commerce. You know, they identify who you are. They identify the asset. That's a dollar. That's a stock. They clear and settle transactions. They keep records. But there are growing problems, and I'm not going to go into that now, but what if there were not just an internet of information? What if there were an internet of value, you know, some kind of vast global distributed ledger where anything of value from money to securities to, you know, music could be stored, transacted, managed in a secure, private way? That's what blockchain represents. It started with Bitcoin because this anonymous person or person, Satoshi Nakamoto, in 2008, cracked the double spend problem, wrote this paper that I think was the biggest innovation in computer science in a generation. And now, for the first time ever, people can deal with assets peer-to-peer, -peer, and trust between them is not achieved by an intermediary. It's achieved by cryptography and some clever code. So this is a, an extraordinary thing, and it has huge implications for every institution in society, and, and it turns out that it could make a real big difference during a pandemic. So, Don, when I read the paper, which anyone can read, you've put it out there for anyone to read, which is around the relevance of blockchain to the kind of crisis that we're living through, there were kind of three things that I came out of reading that document with. The first was the vast range of things which you think could be influenced by blockchain that could be made better by blockchain, whether it's medical data or supply chains or just getting the economy moving. The second thing I felt was that there was almost a kind of tone of poignancy in it, which was we could have been getting a lot of this stuff in place over the last few years, and we haven't. And so sadly, we're talking in this document about things that we can start to do or that we can prepare for the next pandemic. But you know, wouldn't it have been great had we been in a better position to use this stuff now? And then thirdly, that really to make blockchain work is not just a technological issue. It involves major social change and it involves challenging the power 
of big corporations, of governments who quite enjoy the control that they have over data. I'm interested, you know, when you made that TED speech in 2016, such a you know, powerful speech, so influential, and you produced the book, have you been disappointed about the amount of progress that's happened since then? No, disappointed wouldn't be the, the right word. First of all, the book holds up extraordinarily well. But I think that if we look at how different areas and different industries have been affected, it's been quite fascinating. I call it uneven and combined development. In some areas, it's happening way faster than anyone thought. I mean, in the book, we said we thought venture capital would be completely disrupted in a decade. It was completely disrupted within 18 months of writing the book, as you had people using blockchain to raise tens of billions of dollars. You know, trade finance, trains and boats and planes and trucks and airplanes and borders and escrow agents and tax authorities and all these old traditional systems, pay this stuff moving around with faxes and paper and phone calls and so on. You know, imagine if all of that is a shared network state or real time, you can see everything where there's a single version of the truth, where there's no three-day payment or settlement period because a payment and a settlement's the same thing. It's a change to the ledger. Trade finance has completely moved or is moving to blockchain. On the other hand, there are areas that have moved slowly. We were very hopeful that land titles, a big problem, 70% of land titles in the world are not enforceable. You're in Honduras, some dictator comes to power, it says you may have a piece of paper that says you own your farm, but the central government computer says my friend owns your farm. It's a huge problem. It's probably 80%. You know, you go to change a land title and somebody's bribed a local clerk and you don't own your land. But it turns out the, the really big problem there is not getting this stuff onto a blockchain. It's having a valid land title in the first place. But I thought the way that you described it was actually quite accurate, even sort of lucid about blockchain and pandemics. The potential there is massive. And imagine a world where we had done this years ago. We'd have the kind of data that we need to spot something like this early warning system and stop it. You know, supply chains, how can it be? We have trouble getting a paper mask to people or something like hoarding. The reason that people hoard is because they have fear and they lack transparency into the supply chain. Well, blockchain will be the foundation of supply chains and you'll be able to know. You're not going to buy three years of toilet paper if you know that there's toilet paper coming tomorrow. And you'll know the authenticity of a ventilator and where it came from and its provenance and that it was certified and all the rest of that. But to your point, I think that there have been some things that are slowing this down. The technology is still got a way to go. I mean, there are a thousand different blockchains and they don't yet interoperate, although that's changing quickly as we speak. There's a big perceptual problem. Most people think it's about Bitcoin, which it's not, and about criminals. Well, it's true. Criminals use Bitcoin. Criminals are always the first to adopt exciting new technologies. And we estimate that up to 1% of all Bitcoin transactions are for nefarious reasons. But 3% of all cash is criminal activity of some kind. But there's this crazy perception, and that's reflected in all kinds of ways. I mean, one thing, this guy Chris Giancarlo, former head of the CFTC, the big commodities futures market in the United States, 
the biggest stock market that nobody's ever heard of. He's now running the Digital Dollar Project, and he's very articulate. We just interviewed him in one of our webinars talking about how you're bumping up against a whole system of jurisprudence and institutions and regulation and structures and you know legal systems and lawyers and so on that are all designed to reinforce the status quo. And I, I think the biggest thing slowing this down, if you like, or why people think, well, this is not just happening, which is wrong, it's absolutely happening, is that our expectations are kind of a little off. Like with the Internet of Information, you, you put up a website, boom, you're off to business. Maybe add some e-commerce to it and you can sell stuff online. Bang, done in a week. Blockchain, imagine changing the $50 trillion supply chain industry. You know, you're messing with some very profound things like the nature of the corporation. I think this is going to lead to some profound changes in the deep structure and architecture of the firm because companies will become more decentralized and can look more like networks. So our bottom line on all of this is this is going to take a while. Where does the change then come from if the weight of inertia in the system is so great and also, to a certain extent, vested interests? What is it that drives the change? Because as we've agreed, you know, in many ways, had this technology been more fully adopted, particularly by governments and by health systems, we would be in a much stronger position now in relation to the pandemic and in relation to things like track and trace, for example. So what's your model of change, Don, in relation to how it is we overcome these forces? Well, you alluded to it. I mean, as I wrote in Paradigm Shift almost 30 years ago now, you have a new paradigm, which this is. It's the second era of the digital age, blockchain, AI, Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, technology in our bodies. You get a leadership crisis, and new paradigms cause dislocation and conflict, confusion. They're nearly always received by hostility or worse, uh, mockery. Vested interests fight against change, and leaders of old paradigms do have difficulty embracing the new. And it's a real problem of vested interests. On the other hand, even vested interests can see the writing on the wall. You look at a company like JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, who a year ago was saying Bitcoin is a fraud. Now they're transforming huge parts of their business around this because they know that they have to and that there are big opportunities to do that. But leadership in this case is not mainly going to come from the top. I mean, I occasionally meet a government leader, a country leader, president, and I've had some conversations recently with leaders who say, you know, what's my role as a head of state in kind of making this happen? They, they see this as a big opportunity for economic development and for, you know, fighting all kinds of problems, climate change, social development, uh, uh, productivity, land titles, etc. But that's rare. And it's the same thing in corporations. Most of the real drivers that are creating change are not the CEOs or even the, the CFOs or others. I mean, triple entry accounting, imagine what that means for a chief financial officer. It's the biggest change in accounting in 350 years. And it's hard to wrap your head around it. So leadership is kind of coming from all over the place. Just before we started talking, I was watching an online conference, and we're participating in it, that has, I think there are about 8,000 people at that thing right now. 
today. And you've got entrepreneurs, you've got people at all kinds of different levels in organizations who are curious. I mean, that's basically what it takes, some curiosity and a, and a will to want to improve the order of things for the better. Sometimes the thing that really advances a kind of generic technology, and, and blockchain is in a sense a generic technology because there's so many things that it could influence, is a kind of killer app. And in your paper, you spend quite a lot of time exploring issues around medical data. And of course, this is a really big issue here. We're seeing the introduction of track and trace technology, but also some kind of problems associated with some people think the upsurge in cases in Singapore in the last few days has partly been because the authorities there exaggerated the efficacy of the technology. We haven't yet got our app in Britain, although we're promised one, but given the inglorious history of technological innovation in our health service, no one's holding their breath. You, I think, think that blockchain could help us square the circle of, on the one hand, the fact that epidemiologists and governments and others really need to know what's going on out there in terms of people's health and how diseases are spreading and how people may have come into contact with other people. But to do that in a way that gives people security that their data is only being used with their permission and that they can protect their anonymity. And I think you think that blockchain is the way of resolving this kind of dilemma. Well, it, thanks for raising it, because I think it could be the, or certainly a killer app, and the idea of a sort of sovereign medical record is a subset of this broader issue about our digital identities. And I'm coming to the conclusion that there are two or three big issues facing civilization. One's climate change, but this is another one. And if you think about it, we all have these digital identities. The virtual Matthew knows more about you than you do because you can't remember what you said a year ago or body a year ago or your location a year ago or what diagnosis you had or what medication you took or you know what you got on a test or and there are dozens of classes of data but the virtual matthew is created by you but you don't own it it gets expropriated by these big digital conglomerates and other institutions and this is a multifaceted problem people don't quite understand they think it's about privacy well it's true, privacy is a foundation of freedom. And people who say privacy is dead get over it are just foolish. But there are other real issues too. Imagine if you had that data and you could use it to plan your life. You don't. You can't monetize that data. So others are getting enormously wealthy from your data. The top five companies in the United States are all digital conglomerates and they now represent 20% of the standard and poor index. It also means that you don't benefit from the data, but it's going to be hacked because they've got it on central servers. And there are two kinds of these things, those that have been hacked and those that will be hacked. So we end up picking up the mess. And then the other problem is that in something like a pandemic, all these data are in silos, so you can't aggregate the data together to help epidemiologists or government uh, planners or others. And if you are able to get that data into government hands, a citizen can never get it back. So we need to recover our digital identity so that we can manage them responsibly for ourselves and for our own benefit and our families. So this is where blockchain comes in. We could have a portable, sovereign identity that included your healthcare record, but also all your other data. And after you leave the hospital, after a test, those test results are not only in your identity, you own them. 
You could get a second opinion. You could give away the data for science or in a crisis, governments could mandate that we get that data, maybe anonymized, or maybe we get it non-anonymized for a period of time. Because in a situation like this, maybe the best thing for everybody to do is just to behave properly. And this is like an historic topic, and we're spending a lot of time on it. There's a lot going on. I'm very excited about the opportunity. Because if we don't do this, then what kind of civilization do we have where our identities are owned by others? Final question, Don, before I let you go. I know you're in a kind of big, beautiful house with your extended family, but... Over the last couple of months, despite all your writing and events that you've been involved in, have you developed any new kind of enthusiasms or hobbies or interests? Well, we've been up here on the lake for three months, and uh, you bet. I'm already a keyboard player and a guitar player. I have a band. It's called Men in Suits, although we haven't (laughs) physically been together for a while. But I've been learning the banjo. I've also become a quite a ukulele player. And uh, just in the last couple of weeks, I've been uh, learning the drums as well. We've also got a bunch of <laughs> sort of nutty things that we're doing up here. One's not so nutty. We're, we've created a vegetable garden, but we've also got some chickens now as well. It's one of the benefits, I think, of this awful, terrible situation that the world finds itself in is that we do have some time to develop ourselves and be a little more reflective. Well, Don, I think you're the 20th person I've interviewed, and that's probably the most kind of comprehensive answer we've had with chickens, vegetables, and multi-instrumentation. So I'm deeply impressed. Don Tapscott, thank you so much for giving us your time. My pleasure. That was a really enjoyable conversation. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.